That was for her, I'm sure. But uh, <laughs> my kids are uh, are all believers. Are all grown now. We have four of them, and uh, the kids got together. Most of them are in ministry, pooled their money, and gave us a cruise to Cozumel, Mexico, this summer uh, for our 40th anniversary. Surprised us. So uh, it's been a special time. And then our oldest daughter. Some of you know Wendy. Uh, Wendy is 39 years old, and she. Last time she was home, mentioned to her mother she really didn't want to be a single missionary all her life. She wanted a husband that she should share her life and ministry with. And God led her to someone this last fall, and they were married July the 10th. So all four of our kids are married to Christians, believers, all active in service, full-time service. The Bible says, uh, John said, I have no greater joy than to hear my children walk in truth. And that's certainly our testimony as well. There's no then you better than that. But I did want to show you this stone, and I'm going to talk to you a little bit about this stone today in just a moment. But before I do that, let me just explain a little bit who we are. New Yorkers for Constitutional Freedom and New Yorkers Family Research Foundation, our twin sister ministries. Uh, Technically, I work for the Family Foundation, although the other ministry is better known, New Yorkers for Constitutional Freedom. New Yorkers for Constitutional Freedom is a Christian lobbying ministry in the state of New York. We exist to protect churches. That's our existence. Our mission statement is we monitor and impact legislation, we minister to legislation or staff, and we motivate Christians to be salt and light. Sometimes the religious right is criticized for forgetting the gospel, and we try to remember that we're ambassadors for Jesus Christ, and we're concerned about more than a political victory. We can win a vote, but what does it matter if the person we oppose is still lost? So our goal is really to win people to Jesus Christ, including legislators, and uh, God's been blessing in that area. We do have a chaplain, a, a, a legislative prayer breakfast every Tuesday during the legislative year. We are facing more obstacles all the time in doing that. Uh, this last year, the Public Integrity Commission said we could not serve bagels at our breakfast. Actually, we can't serve any food. We were giving them bagels, a muffin, or a donut, and coffee. They said coffee's all right because it's liquid. But if you give them food to eat, then you might be bribing the legislators. Now, if you can bribe a legislator with a bagel, you got the wrong legislator. <laughs> they also, uh, we had intended on giving them a copy of the New Testament and Psalms. And they said, oh, you can't do that. That'd be a gift. So no Bibles, no bagels, but you can have your breakfast. And that's kind of the sense of, of New York. Uh, sometimes it doesn't make sense. But uh, we have seen some wonderful victories. This last year, Jason, leading that ministry, has worked his way partially through the Psalms. And for many of the the legislators, it's the first time they saw the Bible really relates to my life. And uh, it's been a wonderful experience to to hear some of their testimonies of what the prayer meeting means to them. Some of our legislators make it a priority, say, I will not do anything else until I go to the prayer breakfast. And so it's been a real blessing. Jason McGuire is our new CEO. He's doing a wonderful job. He has risen in the state stature. I mean, his reputation is statewide now, and he's gaining some fame. He uh, was invited by Glenn Beck, for instance, to the uh, Restoring Honor Rally. Uh, Beck's organization paid all his expenses. And if you saw the rally, some of the time he was standing. He was on the one of 200 people invited to be on the steps, and he was right behind Beck some of those times. So uh, he's rising, people, he's getting a reputation in the state of New York as a go-to guy. This is a very hectic time for him in particular because the politicians call him. Now, they don't call me. I'm thankful for that. 
but uh, political campaigns, et cetera, will call, and, and his phone's ringing all the time, including late at night. This has been a time of travel. Uh, we are doing pastor's briefings right now. Uh, we meet with pastor groups of pastors all over the state of New York. Uh, we had uh, 11 of them a week ago. This last week, I was in Washington on Monday through Wednesday. Jason is in Washington uh, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, for the va- and Saturday for the values, uh, voter values, uh, value voters summit. I'll get it right yet. And then uh, we have briefings this week. We have six of them this week. The last two weeks, I put 1,200 miles on my car each week. So it's it's that kind of driving. It's a good thing I like to drive, and I'm thankful for beautiful weather. I was able to travel with no problem at all. Well, I wanted to talk to you about this stone. This is a stone that I got uh, February 1970. I was in Israel. We were taking a tour. I enjoy that tour. I went back in 1980. I recommend if you get a chance to go to Israel, go. It is really a wonderful opportunity. There's no experience quite like going into the garden tomb and, and you almost hear the angel saying to you, he is not here for he is risen indeed. What a thrill it is. Well, one of the places we visited was the Valley of Elah. Now, do you know what happened in the Valley of Elah? Well, that's where David slew Goliath. And you can go there and you can see the hillside where the Israelites were and you can see the hillside where the Philistines were. And they bus stopped right at the brook where David picked up five stones. And our tour guide said, uh, told us about this place, and they said, you're free to walk around along the brook. And David took five stones. You're welcome to take one. And so I looked and I found this particular stone, and I've kept it with me ever since. But that night, I got to thinking about that. It's been 3,000 years since David slew Goliath. He took five stones. So I went to the guide and I said, you know, it's been a long time since that story. We're not the first tour bus to stop. How is it there are any stones left? And he said, well, to be honest with you, the Israeli Tourism Council brings them in by the truckload, (laughs) dumps them at night. One thing Israel has is a lot of rocks and we're clearing the land one tourist at a time. Well, I keep the stone for, to remind me of that story. It's my favorite story in the Bible. It also, it also serves, uh, reminds me of the story, let him without sin take up the first stone. So it reminds me of that. But it also reminds me, every, things are not always what they seem. Now, you kind of have to learn that lesson in life, but sometimes things seem one way and they're really something else. Uh, particularly in the world of politics, many times you have to go beneath the commercial to find out where the candidate really stands on the particular issues. In that story, you remember David offered to fight the giant. And he was criticized by his brother. His big brother came up to him and rebuked him. I know the naughtiness of thine heart. Why aren't you back taking care of some sheep? Now, I've had people ask me the same question. Why are you messing around in politics and government when you could be taking care of a group of sheep? You could be a pastor again. I was a pastor for 29 years. In some ways, I'm still a pastor. I'm now a pastor to pastors. And I have a group of guys that I correspond with regularly, call, encourage. We have a ministry called Power in the Pulpit. They have 500 ministers that are on that. We ask them to do three things. Pray for revival, preach on the issues of our day, and partner with us to change New York. Uh, So I, I haven't quit the ministry. But David's response was a good one. What have I now done? Is there not a cause? 
So I'm going to like to talk to you about the cause. Then I'm going to talk to you about a crisis that we're in. And then the choice before us and a commitment that you need to make, you and I need to make. First of all, the cause. What is our cause? Our cause is really faith, family, and freedom. If you pick up one of our uh, prayer cards, you'll see underneath my name, uh, right in the center, it says, Defending Faith, Family, and Freedom. Now, it's not original with me. I've taken that from some other groups. I think it's a good expression of what we're about. Faith, family, freedom. These three things are tied together. America is great because it has a foundation of faith. We express that when we say the Pledge of Allegiance, one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. We express that when we look at our money. It says, in God we trust. That's the national motto. Our nation was founded by people of faith. They express that in the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. Ben Franklin of the Constitutional Convention called for prayer. He made this statement, Sir, I've lived a long time on the earth, and the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth, that God rules in the affairs of men. America was founded by faith. America was founded by families. Now, you don't have to go back too far in your genealogy to run into immigrants. Maybe it's a grandparent. Maybe it's, in my case, it's a great-grandparent. Two of my great-grandparents were married to each other. One was born in France, the other was born in England. I'm thankful they came here. How did they come? Well, the immigrants either came as families or an older brother would come. And what did he do? Raise enough funds to send for his family, his spouse, his children, his mom and dad, his brothers and sisters. And they settle in little, you know, you can go to different parts of the major cities and you'll find an Irish section and an Italian section and a German section, Polish section and all of that. Uh, America was really established by families. And then because of the faith and families, we have freedom. I was in a church not too long ago and I said America is turning to socialism and a person said, what's wrong with that? They didn't know. Well, it's very simple. Bigger government, less freedom. Less, more freedom, less government. That's simply how it works. And we're headed in the wrong direction. We're getting bigger and bigger government and less and less freedom. You don't think so? Try to build something today. Find out what all hoops you have to go through. But it's my property. I can build what I want. Oh, no, you can't. You have to meet zoning codes, building codes, fire codes, health codes. You may have to deal with the environmentalists to say that's wetland. Uh, that's, we're, we're being overwhelmed by government. Big Brother says, I'll take care of you. But there's a high price for that. And we're paying that price. That has led us to a crisis. We're in a fourfold country, a crisis in this country. Number one, there's a crisis in money. We're spending too much money. The governor of the state of New York, to his credit, has been saying since he was put into that position of being governor, moved from lieutenant governor to governor when Spitzer resigned, the budget's too high. We've got to cut the budget. We've got to cut the budget. He's been hammered for it in the media. Unions have been furious with him. This week he announced there's going to be layoffs. And immediately they responded, we're not going to allow him to do that. And, you know, the war's still on, even though he's kind of a lame duck governor. 
In January, he submitted a budget of $132 billion, which is more than we spent last year. Well, if you spend more than last, this year than you spent last year, did you cut or did you increase? To my way of thinking, you increased, but in Albany, I wanted a 10% increase. You're only giving me a 5% increase, therefore you cut me by 5%. That's how it works. Now, the legislature didn't like the budget as presented, so they didn't pass it as it, when it was due on March the 31st. They waited. In fact, they wrestled with that for an extra 125 days. They finally passed it in August, having spent all of that time working on cutting the budget from 132. We're going to cut this budget. When they finally were done and the vote was taken, it was $136 billion. They spent almost $4 billion more than the governor proposed. Well, that's true of the state. We have a problem. Our budget, our constitution says our, our income and outgo have to be balanced. That's why they talk about cuts all the time. The federal government is spending too much money. The national debt is $14 trillion. I do not have a calculator in my home or office that can do a trillion dollars. So I had to do this on paper. It comes out to a lot of money. A lot of money. A trillion dollars. A trillion is a thousand billions. A billion is a thousand millions. You can't count in your lifetime to a trillion. Did you know that? And yet the government is spending more and more money. Now, the federal government can print more money. In which case, we're going to have inflation and our money will be worthless. We have a national debt we can't pay. In fact, our children, our grandchildren will not be able to pay it. Uh, we're doing a great disservice to future generations. We have a money crisis. And who do we owe the debt to? Our biggest debtor, the, the people that lend us the money, is Red China and Saudi Arabia. People that are really are not fond of us. But they're doing it nonetheless. What happens if they say, we're not going to give anymore? We're not going to pay, we're not going to invest anymore in America. We're in financial crisis. It's a crisis that's been years building under Republican and Democratic administrations. Both parties have failed us, but that's where we are. We have a money crisis in America, and it's, of course, affecting the economy. It's affecting jobs. We have people leaving the state of New York because of our taxes and regulations. Companies leaving New York, jobs leaving New York. And really, there's not much of an end in sight. We're in a crisis. We're in a crisis of morality. We're in kind of a moral free fall as a society. I have the opportunity once in a while of, of debating in a public forum uh, people from the other side. It's always interesting challenge. I can't arrange it. It's, they come to me and say, would you be willing to do this? A public high school teacher a few years ago asked if I would debate a homosexual activist on the topic of same-sex marriage. When I got there that day, it was two against one. I had two people to debate, a homosexual activist and a United Methodist minister. I had no guidelines, and so I always include my testimony because I want to make sure they hear the gospel. That's more important than the issue. So I explained John 3.16 briefly, and I said, Now, my authority today is the Bible, the Word of God. Now, this is a public high school, 120 students. I don't think anybody had ever come to them and said the Bible is their authority. So we'll... The format was we each had a few minutes to present ourselves, our case, and then answer questions from the students. 
since there were two of them, they went first, then I spoke, and then we answered questions. Most of the questions directed toward me and were directed toward the Bible. As I'm telling the young people, this is God's word, this is a rule for life, the Methodist minister is saying it's an old archaic book, you don't have to pay any attention to it, throw it out. If you had taken a vote of those 120 students that day, most of them would have said, there are no moral absolutes. There's no right or wrong. One girl, front row, cute little gal, raised her hand. I let her stand and answer. Her question was directed to me. She said, I really don't believe in right and wrong. I think everything's all right. As long as two people love each other, I think they should be able to get married. The topic was gay marriage. So I said, well, let me ask you a question. Do you have a pet? Yes, I have a, a dog or cat, I forget which it was. Well, do you love your pet? Oh, very much. Could you marry your pet? She said, well, no. I said, why not? She said, because it would be wrong. But you just told me there is no right or wrong. See, you, you can't live without a standard of morality. It's just like trying to play a basketball game with no rules. When I was a teen, we had a game like that. We called it murder ball. <laughs> For good reason. You have to have rules. Suppose this afternoon you decide, I'm going to be like the people in England and Japan that drive on the left side of the road. When Wendy comes home on furlough, it's a thrill to ride with her. She's used to driving on the wrong side. But suppose you say, I'm, you know, I don't, nobody's going to tell me where to drive. I'm going to drive on the left side of the road. How well will that work? Or you decide you're going to go for a drive this afternoon and forget the speed limits. It goes fast as you want. You can probably go 95 miles an hour on your car, maybe 100. What do you think will happen? Some policeman's going to disagree with your decision because there are rules. We, we all have rules. The question is, who makes the rules? Now, my way of thinking, God makes the rules. Human laws should be a reflection of God's law, and that's how our country was established and founded. That's what they believed. That's what they said. We don't have to wonder about that. They wrote that down. They said, this is what we believe. This is what we're committed to. As a result, we have had a high standard of morality in America until about the 1950s. What happened in the 1950s? Well, that's my growing up years. I was born in 1948. So I... I was, as growing up, my heroes were Davy Crockett, the Lone Ranger, Roy Rogers, Gene Autry. Now I'll lose most of you. Lash LaRue, Sunset Carson, the Cisco Kid. Okay. They were all good guys. All right. Now who are the heroes of our kids today? Now, some of it was not realistic. The Lone Ranger always shot the gun out of the bad guy's hand. Nobody was, there was never any bloodshed. There was never anybody killed. That maybe not be realistic. Ozzie and Herod, people laughed at because they had separate beds and husbands and wives don't live that way. But the truth is we had a sense of morality. Do we have that today? What happened? Well, the three big events. Playboy magazine was introduced in the 1950s. Early 60s, we got the pill, and then a philosophy entered our public schools called secular humanism. Secular humanism says we remove God. We become a secular society. Humanism basically started in the 1930s with a movement on University of Buffalo saying we find insufficient evidence for God. There is no God. If we're going to solve our problems, we must look to ourselves or man. 
That's why it's called humanism. Secular humanism because no God. No God. If there is no God, there is no judgment. If there is no judgment, how can there be a sense of right and wrong? Now, I read some of these rascals, and they, they try to somehow have morality apart from God's authority. Uh, but it doesn't work. I debated a secular humanist at the University of uh, Albany, State University of Albany Law School, on the topic of the Ten Commandments. But I asked him flat out, which of the commandments don't you like? Which one are you opposed to? Thou shalt not kill. You think it's all right to murder? You think it's all right to steal? It's okay to commit adultery? Which one don't you like? Well, you shouldn't impose your morality on the rest of us. Well, isn't that basically a foundation of society? Would you want to live in a society where it's okay to murder? Would you want to live in a society where property is not property, but you can take whatever you want? You see, we're tearing apart our society and we're ruining our kids by a philosophy that says, leave God out of their lives. So we have this division today. We're in a moral crisis. We're somewhat in moral freefall. We see things on TV that would have made us blush 10 years ago. But we don't blush anymore. We just watch it. We listen to it. What's happened to us? We've been dulled by our culture. And it's invaded our homes through entertainment and education. And these two things are have turned us away from the true and the living God to a false God that cannot meet our needs. Well, nowhere is this seen more than the fact that we have a marriage crisis in America. You know, I went to seminary. I went to Bible college, seminary, have two degrees from seminary, went on for my doctorate degree. Not once did I ever have a class on marriage and defending marriage as a union of a man and a woman. Nobody ever thought we'd have to debate such a thing. We all knew what marriage was. Marriage was a union of a man and a woman. It's what it has always been. But today we have a challenge in that area. Uh, The case to watch right now nationally is the Proposition 8 case in California. The people of California passed a constitutional amendment said the only marriages we'll recognize in this state are between a man and a woman. A U.S. federal court said that's unconstitutional. It's unbelievable. Now, it's being appealed, but it's being appealed in the Ninth Circuit Court, which is the worst court in our whole nation, as far as appeals are concerned. Eventually, it'll reach the Supreme Court, and it'll it'll tell the future of our nation. We're headed towards Sodom, folks. We're becoming more like Sodom all the time. Marriage. But it's not just same-sex marriage. It's you don't have to bother to be married, to live together. We had a neighbor... A single gal that bought a house next to us. One day she introduced to her boyfriend who was moving in. Sometime later they had a baby. Sometime after that they announced to us we're getting married. I thought, good, it's about time. But there was no embarrassment on their part. They didn't blush. It was just, we try it out and if we like it, maybe we'll make the commitment, maybe we won't. Barb teaches in a Christian school last year a six-year-old. One of her first graders came into school one day and said, my mom and dad, who have lived together for seven years, are going to get married next weekend. You see what's happened? We used to, you know, 
have a standard that you get married, then you have babies. But see, some of all that's being blurred. And we were told by Playboy that sex is really just entertainment. And the pill said there are no consequences. Do whatever you want to do. And the philosophy said there is no judgment, so you're free to do whatever you want to do. In fact, the problem with homosexuals and the homosexual movement is a basic attitude. No one, not even God, is going to tell me what to do. That's the bottom line. Read Romans chapter 11. It is the ultimate rebellion against God. In fact, I guess it goes one step further, and that is those who are transsexual. We had to battle a bill called Gender this year, Gender Expression Non-Discrimination Act in which transgendered people want the right to use whichever bathroom they want and face no consequences. We're living in that kind of day. What's happened to us as a people, as a nation? We're in a military crisis as well. The Senate this week added to the appropriate defense appropriation bill a provision to overturn the U.S. Code that said homosexuals cannot serve in the military. The policy is commonly called now, don't ask, don't tell, but that was really an accommodation by uh, Bill Clinton and his administration to allow homosexuals to serve as long as they weren't open. But the law is they cannot serve. You're going to overturn that. All the top military people have said don't do it, but the Congress, in its wisdom, may well overturn it. The Senate vote has not been taken yet, but it could happen any day. I think it's a military crisis. Our military spread very thin right now. And we're adding this into the mix. It's a bad thing to do. We're in a crisis. Which leads me to a choice. America and New York are faced with a choice this fall. We can go one of two directions. I think we've been headed in the wrong direction for some time. We can stop and make some course corrections. But ultimately, the answer is not in politics. The problem is not politics. The problem is a spiritual problem. We've abandoned the true and the living God. America needs to turn back to God. We're headed in this direction. It's time to stop. Some of the things happening to us might be called reproofs of life. When you go against God's will in your life, he'll send reproofs. Uh, to, call, to help you to understand you're going the wrong way. Remember, Saul, Saul, is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. You're going the wrong way, Saul. What did Saul do? He arose, turned back, and came back to God. The prodigal son in the pig pen said, Why am I here? My father has servants and food enough to spare, and I perish for hunger with these pigs. I will arise and go to my father and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven before thee and no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as thy hired servant. But before he ever got there, what happened? While he was still a long ways off, his father saw him, ran to him, hugged him, put a robe around him, a ring on his finger, and said, This my son was lost and is found. That's God the Father's attitude toward America. God says, Come home to me. Come home. I believe 9-11 was a wake-up call. But like Prime Minister Tony Blair of England, the problem is most of America, most of the world, rolled over and went back to sleep. It's time for America to wake up. We're losing our freedom. We're, our families are in trouble. They're breaking apart. And we've abandoned the faith. 
it's time to come back to God. Now, thankfully, there's some reason for hope. Now, the first part of this sermon, I'm glad, I'm sure you're glad you came to hear all that. But there is reason for hope. The oil crisis in the Gulf was a fascinating thing to watch. An oil well disrupted, it was five miles down. Somehow a leak formed. Millions of barrels of oil were being spilled into the Gulf every single day. Everything that could be done to block it had failed in June. They had tried everything they knew how to try. Everything they tried failed again and again and again. Finally, the governors of five of the Gulf states, Florida, Alabama, Louisiana, Mississippi, and Texas, said, we have a problem so big, we can't handle it. Maybe it's time we ask God for help. So they call for a statewide day of prayer in those states on June the 27th of this year. Four of the five governors issued a proclamation. I've not been able to find one from the fifth, but it was leaders in that state that did observe a day of prayer. So all five states. Five states called on people to pray specifically about the oil well. Within two weeks, they had blocked the oil well. Furthermore, they've not been able to find the oil that spilled out. They know it's got to be there somewhere. It couldn't just disappear. Oil floats. Some say, well, it became tar and sunk, but even tar, I understand, floats. So they're really puzzled as to where it went. I think maybe God took care of it. I don't know about you, but I think that's an encouraging sign. I'd like to see our governor say, we've got a money crisis so big, we can't handle it, it's time to pray. Wouldn't you? I'd like to see President Obama come on a television screen at night and say, you know what, we have so many problems in this country, it's time for God's people to pray. That'll take a revival, folks. Now, here's a choice. We're going to trust God or we're going to trust man? That's the choice. We're going to trust our plans, our schemes, our plots, or we're going to trust the true and the living God? And then a commitment. What is the commitment that's needed? You and I need to stand up and be counted. It's time for Christians to arise and say, this is the way back. This is the way to return back to the God of our fathers. God has blessed our nation in the past. In some ways, he's doing so now. But unless we turn from our wicked way, the day may come when God simply lifts his hand of blessing from off our land. It's time for Christians to get committed, to get real, to stand up for truth, for rights, it's time for us to arise. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Father, we need revival in America. Your church, your churches across the state, many of them are sound, but sound asleep. Wake us up, Lord. It's time to awake and arise. There's work to be done. There's a victory to be won. Heavenly Father, I believe you're not finished with our country yet. And so, Lord, I pray that Christians would rise and fill the gap. Father, I pray that you would use us to make a difference for the state, for the nation, for the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you. God bless.